if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 11. And that's where we are going to be today. We are uh, continuing our series in his steps. We've been tracing the life of Christ chronologically. Um, This story is uh, a little out of chronology. Uh, It's a little out of sequence. But I really felt impressed by the Lord that this was the day, this was the message um, to share with you. Um, I actually have another sermon that is in chronological order, and I've been trying to preach it for for three weeks, and the Lord is just saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. So uh, we are in uh, uh, Luke chapter 11, and you can flip there. We'll get to the scriptures in just a moment. Um, Two weeks ago, I spoke on the Lord, um, really smacked me around a little bit. And I spoke a message on what it means to abide. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear that message, go back on our church website, friendshipchurch.cc, slash sermons, and find this graphic that is in his steps, volume three. And uh, it should be the very last one, what it means to abide. Um, based on the response that I got from that message, I, I, I believe that that message struck a chord with many of you. Abiding in Jesus, abiding in the presence of the Lord is not something that comes naturally. Uh, Sitting quietly, reading a book that's about 2,000 years old, talking to an invisible person, and waiting for that invisible person to speak back to you, it's not something that comes natural to our rational minds. But when we do it, we get it. When we, when we pray and when we commit to reading Scripture, we understand the value of abiding. And when God speaks to us through his word, when God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, we wonder, why aren't we doing this more often? Man, that was such a powerful time. And so in Scripture, we're looking at uh, a passage where Jesus, throughout, throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly encountered these religious leaders, and he, they were called Pharisees. They knew the Scripture, and they knew they were supposed to be teaching that Scripture to the people. Yet time and time again, Jesus revealed their hypocrisy. They said one thing, and they did the opposite. They required people to adhere to laws and regulations, but they found out ways around them so that they didn't have to adhere to them. These men did the opposite of abiding. They pursued religion so that it would benefit themselves. And since we are people who are pursuing a relationship with the Lord, learning God's word, seeking God's will, we must look at the faults that Jesus found in these religious men so that we avoid these same faults ourselves. So today, the title of the message is What Hypocrites Are Missing. So we're looking at Luke 11. I told you to turn there, and I didn't. Luke chapter 11, we're looking at uh, verses 37 through 41 at what the hypocrites did. Luke eleven thirty seven through 41, it says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. This would be an honor. Anytime you had a very revered and well-known leader, you would invite them into your home, and it would be an honor for you to have them in your home. But the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, 
Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who make the did, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So what we see in this passage is the first thing, they were outwardly clean, but inwardly filthy. So if you have in your bulletins, there's a little uh, sheet you can fill in the blanks. They were outwardly clean, but they were inwardly filthy. That's number one. They were ridiculously strict with matters and customs and traditions like ceremonial cleansing to remove the filth of the common people from their hands. And so ritual and outward purity was incredibly important to them. But they ignored God's demands for inward holiness and for charity towards the poor. So hypocrisy is always more concerned with the form than with reality. These men were relentless in their pursuit for money. They were full of greed, which is the scripture here. That that word greed is also translated robbery. They robbed people as part of their spiritual experience. That's like if... Uh, a pastor decided to shake you down during the offering time because he knew how much you made a year. Yeah, you left your paycheck stub here one Sunday. I know how much you make, and I've seen how much you give in the offering. I think you can be a little bit more generous. That would be incredibly uncomfortable. We could start doing that, but I would assume that you would not want us to do that. So we want you to give generously from the overflow of your heart. But these Pharisees were extorting people. They were robbing people. And they were essentially making that part of uh, a requirement of the people. You're not giving enough. You need to give more and more and more. And so they were robbing people. These people depended upon being in the good graces of the religious leaders so that they could take part in the festivals and the rituals. So they had no choice but to pay what amounted to religious bribery. So Jesus asked a rhetorical question in verse 40. He said, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? God made, obviously, both the inside and the outside of you. And so he made the external appearance and inward nature of your soul and your spirit. He made all three, your body, your soul, and your spirit, and they should be in agreement and not in disagreement with each other. Verse 41, Jesus acknowledged that if they had a generous and a gracious heart, that that would radiate on the outside of them, and it would demonstrate that they were truly pure and clean. That what's on the inside comes out. And so we give of the overflow of what we have experienced. This is one of the reasons why Jesus, in several passages we've dealt with previously, Jesus uh, talked about the man who had been forgiven much. You remember the story? He has been forgiven this ridiculous amount. It it equaled about $6 billion. And he told the master, I will repay every penny. And we calculated what he made and how long it would take. It would have taken him, do you remember, 200,000 years of working and giving every penny just to pay back the principle of what he owed. And it's when, when the king saw that situation and he said, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. This is a debt you could not possibly repay. I will forgive you. 
What does the servant do? Leaves the king's presence, having received this audacious forgiveness, and he goes and finds someone who owes him 120 bucks. And he beats him, and he chokes him, and he says, you'll give me back every penny. Because the forgiveness that the man had received had not translated into a change in his heart. He was grateful. He was glad that he was forgiven because he didn't have to repay it. But it didn't change his heart. And this is what we see in the religious leaders, the Pharisees of these days, of of Jesus' day, is that what was going on uh, externally had not changed internally. They were showing that they were religious. They were acting like they were clean. They were acting like they were spiritual, but it had not changed their heart. So if we're full of hatred and bitterness and spite, that's going to come out. If we're full of love and kindness and patience, that will come out. As Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If what's coming out of your mouth is bad, it's not a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. Because what's coming out of your mouth originates from your heart. So number two, let's look at Luke eleven forty two. Jesus is still talking. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here, verse 42, it's a unique statement that Jesus makes. It's the only time he ever said anything nice to the Pharisees. You should make a note. He never said anything good or kind or gracious to them because they were hypocrites, except right here. This is where, and and it's kind of like not even a compliment. It's kind of a compliment, but he's not a compliment. He tells them, in the area of tithing, you're doing what you, what you're doing what you should do. You're tithing off of your increase. He said, you're so careful to tithe off of your spice rack, and you should tithe out of your increase. Now, most of us, we don't get, we don't receive spices. Like, we're not, you know, you didn't come to church today and bring, you know, carry your spice rack with you or, or carry, you know, uh, you know, animals with you, whatever, you're not bringing that as your increase. That's not your increase. For you, it's your paycheck. And so that's what we give. We give of the increase. But these people received these things. They gave that as part of their tithe. And so when the Pharisees received it, when the religious leaders received it, they tithed back to uh, the temple so that the uh, Levites, the priests, had uh, food that there would be food in my house, is what Scripture says. So they didn't want to overlook anything that was considered tithable. They were overcompensating, really, and tithing so carefully. And so their rules were above and beyond what Scripture was requiring. Scripture just said, you know, give of your increase, and and it, it was, you know, explain how to do that. And Jesus said, look, you're really good tithers. You're incredibly generous. But you've neglected the more important things like justice, mercy, and loving God unconditionally. So the second thing we see in this passage is that they donated publicly for praise, but they ignored matters of justice. They ignored matters for justice. They they 
donated generously for praise and for, uh, uh, for people to notice what they were doing. But they ignored the more weightier things, is what Jesus is saying. Love, justice, mercy, and loving God unconditionally. The Talmud, which is a compilation of the Jewish oral laws and the traditions, it describes seven types of Pharisees. The first five of the seven are all hypocritical. There's the shoulder Pharisee who wears all his good actions on his shoulder for all to see. Number two is the wait-a-little Pharisee who finds excuses for putting off good deeds. Some of you, your wife has asked you to, to fix the kitchen or to do some things around the house, and you might be the wait-a-little Pharisee. I'll get to it. You don't need to remind me every six months. I know I need to do it. Number three, the bruised Pharisee who would run into walls to avoid looking at a woman and possibly accidentally lusting after her. So he was called the bruised Pharisee. Number four was the hunched over Pharisee who walks bent over in false humility. Number five, the ever reckoning Pharisee who is always weighing his good deeds against his bad. So we think, well, did I do more good than bad this week? Okay, good. Then I'm, then I'm in God's plus column. If I did more bad than good, then I really need to make up for that. Number six is the God-fearing Pharisee who lives in holy awe and fear of God. Number seven, the God-loving Pharisee who loves God with all his heart. It's sad that even within the Jew, uh, the, the, their own writings, the, the Jewish leaders recognized how there were only two types, two of the seven Pharisees that were godly and doing what's right. They recognized how easy it is to fall into hypocrisy. Number three, let's look at Luke chapter 11, verses 43 through 44. Jesus says, don't keep in mind, just remember where Jesus is. He's at a guy's house. They're having dinner. And it all started because Jesus didn't wash his hands which is not legally required according to Scripture. It was a tradition, and he didn't do it. And so that guy who invited Jesus into his home is the one that started this whole conversation. And I'm sure he's really regretting even opening his mouth. He's probably like, Jesus, I'm sorry, I should have dropped it. It was dumb. I apologize. Can we move on? And Jesus says, no. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So what we see here in number three is that they were arrogant and prideful in their displays of religion. They were arrogant and they were prideful in their displays of religion. They, ha- they would parade their piety. And it was uh, a means to enhance their own vanity rather than to bring glory to God. They would, uh, Jesus actually rebuked them at one point because one of the commands was to wear these things called uh, zitzit. And in English, it's tassels. And they would tie them on the corners, the four corners of their garments. And so it was to serve as a visual reminder that a Jewish man was engaged in business with you or whatever. It was to hold them accountable. And these, these zitzit were on their, 
their uh, garments. Well, what, would, what they would do is to appear super spiritual, they would make them longer so that they would blow in, you know, in the wind. Look how spiritual I am. It doesn't look spiritual when I do that, though. But they would, they would you know, have these tassels that would, that would be longer. Oh, look at that. His tassels are really long. He's super special and super righteous. And they would do these things. They would stand on the corners, and, and someone would say, you know, would you, would you offer a prayer to God? Here, I'll pay you. Would you offer a prayer to God for my sick child? And they would, they would stop the marketplace. Everybody stop what you're doing and, and pay attention to me. And they would offer this loud, long prayer. And, and really, God wasn't getting the glory. Man was getting the glory. And so Jesus is like, I am sick and tired of this. And since you brought it up, here you go. Woe to you. Woe to you. They would seek out the best spots and they would sit there. They would slowly parade themselves through the marketplaces to greet all the people. Hello, peasants. It's good to see you all. I'm a Pharisee. It was all arrogance, it was all pride. And it was, the never, it was never the way that Jesus walked among the people. Look at how Jesus walked among the people. He went among them looking for ways to minister to them. He engaged with them. He helped them. The outcasts of society, people who were not even allowed to enter his presence without shouting unclean, unclean because they had leprosy or a disease And he did what was not allowed without becoming ceremonially unclean himself. He reached out and he touched them. And what we talked about before in those instances, when Jesus reached out and touched a leper, see, that uncleanness didn't make Jesus unclean. His cleanness made them clean. That's what you need to understand. That we're not going to defile God. God's holiness and righteousness, anything that touched the altar didn't defile the altar. Anything that touched the altar became clean. And so Jesus wasn't worried about reaching out and touching unclean people because he knew that if he did, they would become clean in that moment. But, but the Pharisees didn't act that way. The Pharisees walked around looking for ways that people could honor them. And then Jesus makes this unusual statement about unmarked graves. Stepping on a grave, just so that you understand, is from Numbers chapter 19, in case you were curious and wanted to write that down. Numbers 19, 16. If you stepped on a grave, it made you unclean. Um, So unmarked graves were a nuisance because people would step on a grave and become unclean and not even know that they were unclean because the grave was not marked. They would, uh, so Jesus was saying that people are becoming unclean just by coming in contact with you. Just by being around your hypocrisy, you are infecting other people and making them unclean because of the uncleanness and the hypocrisy of your own heart. And what we learn as you read Scripture, the Bible is very clear on these laws and regulations about uh, Dealing with corpses. Nothing spread impurity uh, faster than a corpse. And Pharisees believed that if your shadow touched a corpse, you were unclean. If your shadow touched a grave, 
that would make you unclean. And so what they did was they created this process, um, this tradition of whitewashing tombs for two purposes. Number one, it would identify that's a tomb. It's a used tomb, and there's a dead person inside, so don't go near it, don't touch it, and don't let your shadow cross, uh, come across it. But it also, as we learn when Jesus used this expression towards the Pharisees, he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You're pretty on the outside, but you're full of death on the inside. To which the Pharisees and religious leaders were slightly offended at such things. Number four, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 11, 45 through 46. And so, as Jesus has told them, you're like unmarked graves, and you're spreading your hypocrisy to everybody around you. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him. These aren't lawyers like we think lawyers. These are experts in the religious laws. And uh, so he, they said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Like, we were just hanging out. We were fine with you, you know, yelling at these guys. Woe to them, woe to them. Yeah, we don't like them anyway. But now you're insulting us as well. Verse 46. And he says, oh, you should have kept your mouth shut. Woe to you, lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So number four, they burdened people with unnecessary requirements. They burdened people with unnecessary requirements. The lawyers were the ones that interpreted the laws to let the people know how to live, how to behave. And they interpreted it incredibly strict, causing people to be burdened with requirements that God never intended. They placed intolerable legal requirements on people, but they figured out a way to avoid those requirements for themselves. Verse 47 and 48. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. So number five, we see they hypocritically honored people they used to hate. They hypocritically honored people they used to hate. You see this in the story of Esther. Uh, Haman is a man who is evil and sick, and he wants to kill a a man, Mordecai, Mordecai, who did not honor him. And um, Mordecai ended up saving the king's life. The king wants to honor him. So when the king says, hey, uh, Haman, come in here. I want to honor somebody. I want to exalt him and, and everything. And so Haman thinks the king is talking about himself. And he's like, look, if you're going to honor the guy, man, roll out the red carpet. He gets to ride in your chariot. He gets to wear one of your robes. He gets uh, down the main street and everybody comes out, ticker tape parade and yells, yo, yay, you know, go Haman, you're the best. You know, and so the king is like, you know what? That's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. And Haman's, uh, Haman's like, no, it's the man I hate. But Haman has no choice. The word of the king declared what he had to do. And so now he has to honor someone that he hated. Haman is driving the chariot with Mordecai being exalted right next to him. 
I mean, if that didn't make his blood boil, this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing on a regular basis. They built monuments to honor the prophets that their ancestors, the religious leaders, had killed. They didn't honor the message because they consented to the death of the prophets, but they built monuments in their honor. So Jesus is saying, you are full of hypocrisy. You can't honor the prophet and dishonor his message. But that's exactly what you do. And so Jesus pointed out their double-mindedness. And he was basically saying, like father, like son. Your ancestors hated the prophets and killed them, uh, sometimes very, very violently and, and terribly. And you agree with their decision, and yet you honor them in hypocrisy. And so the sins of their ancestors and the mentality of sticking their fingers in their ears to avoid hearing God's voice was continuing on through them. Luke 49 through 52, Jesus still speaking. He says, therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So number six, we see that they rejected the wisdom and the word of God. Why would all of the blood of the prophets killed before this generation be charged against that generation? Because... Every one of those prophets prophesied about the Messiah who was standing right in front of them. And if they rejected their message, and if they murdered those prophets, then they were rejecting the one of whom the prophets were speaking of. Abel was the first martyr, killed for his righteousness. I know, and just real quickly, sometimes we assume, you know, if you were to ask somebody, how did Cain kill Abel? We kind of think, ah, he, you know, hit him upside the head with a rock. I had a picture Bible when I was a kid, and uh, so everything was in cartoon form, and that was, that was how Cain killed Abel. He smacked him upside the head with a rock. And I thought, does that really kill people? I guess so. But anyway, that's actually not how Abel died. In later on in the New Testament, it uses the term, it talks about how Cain slew Abel, S-L-E-W is our King James Version uh, word for it, slew. Cain slew Abel. Well, that word slew is the Greek word sfatso, which means to slit one's throat. So Cain deliberately made Abel into a sacrifice. Abel sacrificed his lamb. He slit the throat of the lamb. The blood pours out on the altar. God accepts the sacrifice. Cain grabs a bunch of corn and grain and crops and sticks them on the altar, and God doesn't accept it. And it's not what he offered, it's the heart with which he offered it. And because God rejected Cain's offering, Cain decided, you know what? If you won't accept my sacrifice, I'll give you a sacrifice. And so he he approached his brother and he slit Abel's throat, which is why God said, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You made him. 
into the very first human sacrifice, it took one generation, one generation for murder to arise in the hearts of mankind. So Abel was the first martyr. Zechariah was the last Old Testament martyr. A prophet killed by people who didn't want to hear his messages from the Lord. They figured if we can just shut him up, he won't be able to condemn our idolatry. He won't be able to condemn our wicked practices and prophesy our doom and destruction anymore. So we just need to kill him so that God no longer speaks through him. Jewish tradition declared that after Zechariah's death, who was killed in God's temple, a fountain of blood appeared in the temple that nothing could appease. And as I said, God's, God said that Abel's blood was crying out to him from the ground. Zechariah cried out at his death for God to take revenge against the people. So for Jesus to say that vengeance would be laid upon that generation... For all of the martyrs, all of the martyred prophets, was for Jesus to prophesy unimaginable punishment upon them. They rejected the preachers of righteousness, and the one of whom all prophecy talked about was standing right in front of them. Verse 52. You've taken away the key of knowledge, and you didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Reading and understanding God's word is the key of knowledge. This is the word of God. And they denied people to have access to God's word. They told them this is how you interpret it and what it meant for them instead of letting them see it for themselves. We would, when I was spending time in Messianic synagogues, these are Jews who accepted Christ, and I asked them, why in the world don't more Jewish people see through the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. How can they not see Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61, uh, the prophecies from Amos, the prophecies that he'd be born in Bethlehem, all of these prophecies, hundreds of prophecies. How can they not see it in their own scriptures? The answer I was told was that the rabbis forbid the reading of those passages. The people don't know. They don't know their own word. They don't know the word of God. They don't know what the prophecies say because the rabbis have convinced them you can't understand what it means, so you're not allowed to read it. Don't read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Don't read these prophecies because you couldn't understand them. This is why people need the word of God. And so... They had, these Pharisees had a monopoly on God's revelation to humanity, the key of knowledge. And they wouldn't help other people understand it. They were, they were not wrestling with the truth. They weren't really trying to understand God's word. So they denied everybody the opportunity to see it for themselves. So here we're going to look at five things the hypocrites were missing. You think, oh my gosh, that was only half a sermon? No, this is, this is the shorter half. First half was the longer half. This is the shorter half. First thing that we see the hypocrites were missing, they lacked brokenness over their sinful state. They had no brokenness over their sinful state. When King David, in 2 Samuel 12, when King David was confronted over the sin of idolatry, I'm sorry, adultery, 
and murder, because he had uh, Bathsheba's husband murdered, when he was confronted over that, David responded in brokenness. He never justified his actions. He never said, well, I'm the king, and I will do anything that I want to do. Instead, he recognized that he had sinned against a holy God. And a year later, he was still broken over his sin when he wrote Psalm 51. A year later, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A year later, he's still wrestling with the brokenness over his sin and what he's done and the, the, the uh, repercussions, the consequences of his sin. Later in the chapter, he wrote one of the most beautiful prayers for help. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. When we see our sin the way God sees our sin. We can truly understand why we should be broken over our sin. We don't have to live in a perpetual state of, of guilt and shame. We can repent, turn, but we should still be broken over our sin. Number two, compassion. The hypocrites were missing compassion for the lost and hurting for those around them. The religious leaders felt that the poor around them existed to serve them and honor them and honor their positions. They didn't understand that they, in their religious position, existed to help the people know God better and to follow him closer. They didn't look at the needs of the people with a compassionate heart. Yet time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus did. He looked on the multitude with compassion. His heart was moved with compassion when he looked out over on a, on a, a cliff or, or wherever he was. He looked out over Jerusalem and he, he wept over the state of Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. But you weren't willing. You weren't willing, Jerusalem. The stories that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, they were all about compassion. Jesus wants us to look at people and see how we can benefit them, not how they will benefit us. Number three, they were missing humility to give others first place. They were missing humility. As I talked about two weeks ago in the message, what, it, what does it mean to abide? When you're the hero of your own story, then humility is not your strongest character trait. Putting others first is not natural for any of us. Making yourself look bad and other people look good is the hardest thing to do. You know what's easy? Throwing people under the bus. That's easy. And we like to do it. We just grab them and throw them under the bus. No, 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 boss. That email didn't come from me. That came from this guy right here. 
He was the dumb one. He sent the email that said, the spreadsheet is attached, but the spreadsheet wasn't attached. That guy. Making yourself look bad and others look good, it's hard. But we see the humility of Christ over and over and over in Scripture. If he were to, now, now remember in Scripture, Jesus heals people. And then he says something that kind of takes us aback. He says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Just go show yourself to the priest, give the offerings that the law requires, and we're good. Don't tell anybody. You know what they did? They told everybody. But Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. If he were to have healed someone and then say, I want you to go tell everybody. Go tell it on the mountain what Jesus has done for you. That would not have been the humble response. The humble response was not to glorify himself. Now, I know you're probably thinking, wait a minute, that's Jesus. Stick with me for a second. Jesus repeatedly did not receive glory from others. He said, if I glorify myself, in John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. And so his goal was not to glorify himself. He responded humbly, and he said, I want you to honor the Father. Honor the Father, because the Father was going to glorify Jesus. The only time that Jesus ever prayed for God to glorify, for the Father to glorify him was right before he stepped towards Calvary. It was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed that God would glorify him, not for honor among men, but for his death on the cross. That he would be raised up, lifted up, and glorified as the once and for all sacrifice for all of our sins. He gave all the glory to the Father in true humility, something that the religious leaders sorely lacked. Number four, the religious uh, leaders, they lacked grace-based understanding of salvation. They did not understand what it was like to be in God's grace. <clears throat> Twice in Ephesians, Paul wrote that it is by grace that we're saved. It's not by works. You don't have to worry about doing enough good deeds to cancel out all the bad deeds you did. God chose us. We did not choose him. We cannot earn our salvation through good works. It's God's gift to us. It is by grace through faith. We believe that God has given us this great gift, and it is his gracious salvation. It is not because of anything that you do, because you cannot earn it. And so Jesus was quick to point out that they were contradicting God's word instead of just teaching what God had said. They did not understand grace-based salvation. Number five. They lacked a commitment to knowing, understanding, and applying God's word in their lives. They lacked commitment to knowing, understanding, and applying God's word in your lives. This book, the Holy Bible, is available in any translation you could possibly want or need. I think BibleGateway.com or maybe the YouVersion app has about 1,500 translations in so many different languages. The word of God has never been more accessible to us. It has never been more accessible to humanity than
than it is at this very moment. And let me ask you a question. What value do you place upon it? How many times a day do you pick it up? What priority is there in your life for the Word of God? There are places in this world you can actually YouTube videos of people in nations where uh, the written Word of God is not legal, and they receive Bibles in their own language. And you've never seen someone express such ecstasy and happiness and joy as these believers who get to hold a Bible in their own hands, in their own language. They are so thrilled that they have now access to what God's Word says because previously it's stories. They have to pass on stories to each other. They only know what they've been told. But now they get the Word of God for themselves We have no excuse. If we are spiritually dead, if we're spiritually dry, if we're spiritually ignorant and we don't know what God wants, it's our own excuse. It's our own fault. Because we have access to what God wants of us. We have access to so many uh, tools and resources to not only read God's word, but understand God's word. And we don't value it. We don't treasure it. We make it something like, oh man, I forgot, I got to read the Bible. It doesn't take priority in our lives. And these religious leaders, they, they manipulated and they twisted Scripture. And they even added their own words to it and treated it like those were God's words, all to benefit themselves. They had a monopoly on God's revelation to mankind, and they had no interest in helping other people know what God really said. When you were growing up, didn't it, kind of irritate you when your parents would say, because I said so, because I told you so. You don't need to know. Now, maybe it's because you ask too many questions, teenagers. But sometimes, man, it would irritate you. I would like to know, why can't I do this? Well, because I said so. Why do I have to do this? Because I said so. And, I, and sometimes if you have the opportunity to explain, you can because it lets them know, oh, it's to protect me. Oh, it's because of this. Oh, it's because of that. Well, the religious leaders did that to the people all the time. They wouldn't let them see the scrolls, read the word of God. They told them how to interpret it. They told them what to believe, and they didn't let them access to know what God's word said and read it for themselves. And so they were too busy saddling people with pointless rituals, traditions, and requirements that God never intended. People were hungry for spiritual life. And instead, they were getting a religion instead, spiritual death. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 25 through 26, it says, Husbands, coming off the heels of of Valentine's Day, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, and this is the important point, by the washing of the water of the word. We are cleansed, we are made clean, we are made pure by the washing of the water of the word. That means the more we read of God's word, the more we understand, the more we take in, and the more we know God's word, the more power it has to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. How does that work? How does the water cleanse us? You've all been waiting for this, haven't you? You probably thought, did he forget? I want you to imagine each sin, each ping pong ball is a sin. This one says bribery. This one says murmuring. My parents used to quote a scripture. um, What what was it? Uh, Do all things without murmuring and disputing. I was like, "Mm, I don't like that one. My brother and I would argue a lot. This one says assault, murder, dishonoring your parents. These are all sins according to scripture. An unforgiving heart, slander, wrath, bitterness, sowing discord, fault finding, strife, false accusations, heresies, extortions, idolatry. Uh, uh, Let's see, I said a lot of fraud. And so these ping pong balls all have names of sins, various sins written on them. And they fill up this vessel. This vessel clearly represents you. And so a lot of times we like to live like this, that our secret sins never see the light of day. We don't deal with them. We don't talk about them. We just push them down, act like they're not really there. And if you never take in the water of the word... These sins never get exposed. And you never have the opportunity to deal with your sin. And you never give God the opportunity to let you get rid of that. To to loose the grip that this sin has in your life. But as you start engaging with God's word, the word is like water that helps bring to the surface... All the things that are impure in your life. They're all coming to the surface. As you allow God to wash you in the water of the word, those things that are buried, I ran out of water, Uh, those things that are buried deep inside that you've been pushing down and holding down, God begins to pull them up and he begins to expose them and you begin to see in scripture how God can heal you of your wounds, how God can reveal the temptations that you are allowing in your life so that you don't give in to those temptations, all the secret sins that you have buried down deep, so deep, and you've been trying to live the Christian life with one foot in heaven and one foot in the world. And if you don't know, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, God has a specific word towards people who live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. He says to the church of Laodicea, you're lukewarm. I wish you're either hot or cold. Like That's a striking statement that God would rather you be cold than lukewarm. But he said, if you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. 
I will have nothing to do with you because you cannot be fully surrendered to God with one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot in the kingdom of the world. The more water of the word that you take in, the more it exposes these sins. The more it helps you remove these sins. One by one, all the things that are buried and hidden, all the secret sins in your life, they are revealed. They're exposed to the light, to the light of the world, so that you can deal with them. It's not about embarrassing you. It's about purifying you. It's about making you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you a key today. Your spiritual breakthrough is directly tied to your relationship with God's word. Your spiritual breakthrough is directly tied to your relationship with God's word. If you have no relationship with God's word, you will have no breakthrough. And if you do have a powerful and strong and deep relationship with God's word, you will have a powerful and strong and deep breakthrough in the things that you have struggled with, the things that you have dealt with, the things that have held you down, held you captive. You will have breakthrough, but only in proportion to your relationship with God's word. It's not your relationship to anything else. You can read every one of Max Lucado's books. You can read every one of Joel Osteen's books. You can read every one of the Christian living and, and how to live your best life right now. It won't make a difference if it's not God's word. It's all man's ideas. It's all fluff. God will show you As you commit to reading God's word, he will show you what you need to work on. He will reveal to you. As I told you two weeks ago, I was sitting in my office. God said, I want you to abide with me. And I said, okay, fine, let's abide, whatever that means. And the Lord gave me a scripture, uh, Jeremiah 29. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, and all this stuff. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon. It was good. You can go back and listen to it. Listen to it again if you already heard it. If you were here, listen to it again. And the Lord said, yeah, right chapter, wrong verse. And the verse he showed me really struck. It struck me. He used his word to pierce my heart. And we talk about how the the Holy Spirit will call to remembrance those things. And and it's a bit of a, a taken out of context because God is saying, look, when you're standing before rulers and they call you to account, he will call things to remember. So you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. He'll call those things to remember the Holy Spirit will help you. And, you know, we, when we're, you know, trying to take a final exam, we're like, Lord, Holy Spirit, call things to remembrance. And God can't remind you of something you don't know. God cannot call something to remembrance. He cannot help you remember something that you never learned in the first place. So if you want God to call things to remembrance, if you want God to speak to you from your word and be able to do to for you what he does to me and pick up scriptures and say, hey, read this chapter, read this verse, then you've got to read it. And then he can call things to remembrance. The goal is so that God uses the word in the spirit and helps you become more and more like Jesus Christ to remove these sins, these, all of these different things from your life that need to go. They have no place in your life. Murder has no place in your life. Being hard-hearted has no place in your life. Hypocrisy. Deceit, fraud, gluttony, envy, false accusations, 
slander, bribery, backbiting, unmerciful, coveting. It has no place in your life if you're going to be a son and daughter of Jesus Christ, a son and daughter of the Most High God. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We did have uh, one question that came in, um, there, and I, I didn't mention it in case you didn't know. We, we let you text questions during the service, um, and I'll try to address them at the end if I can. The question that came up is, in what ways are, church, in what ways are some of today's churches burdening, burdening their members with some requirements that are not necessarily biblical? I think churches, they're, they're, it's not that they had traditions. What Jesus rebuked the Pharisees specifically of is he said, and, and you'll actually, you can go back and listen to um, a sermon I preached in this sermon series. I believe it was called The Invalid Word of God. What they did, these Pharisees, <clears throat> were taking their traditions and putting them above God's word. And Jesus said, you are invalidating God's word because you're taking your traditions and putting them above God's own word. And by doing so, you invalidate God's word for the sake of your own traditions. So there's nothing wrong with traditions as long as you keep things in check. Um, now, obviously, I don't know what specific uh, thing this individual was asking about, how churches burden their members. I hope you don't think we're burdening you. Um, we do have traditions as part of our faith community, uh, but not one of them comes above the word of God. When God speaks, we listen. When God speaks to us from his word, we listen. When God speaks to us through his spirit, we listen. Would you stand with me this morning? If you ask that question and uh, you'd like to continue the dialogue or you'd like me to be more specific, my email address is in the bulletin, and I, I'll, I'll definitely uh, do my best. You can email me, and, and we can, uh, I'll try to answer it a little bit better. Have you ever, have you ever gone to uh, talk to people, and they're like, you know what? I'm not going to go to church. Church is full of hypocrites. Church is full of hypocrites. And while that may be true that there are hypocrites who attend church, I think the more accurate statement is to say that the church is full of imperfect people trying to li live and love a perfect God and to live up to a perfect example in Jesus Christ. It's an impossible attempt because we all make mistakes. So hypocrites are, hypocrites are not people who make mistakes. Hypocrites are people who say, do as I say, not as I do. The word hypocrite in Greek means actor. It's a person who puts on a mask, who, who plays a part. They have no intention of being what they say they are. That's a hypocrite. But I would venture to guess that the vast majority of you, that's not you. You're an imperfect person trying to love a perfect God and live up to a perfect example in Jesus Christ. So we say, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We're on this journey together. We're a church family. We are bonded together. We love each other. We're, we desire fellowship and community with each other. And so our goal is to follow Christ. And we do that as we walk together in God's word. We are not perfect, but we are forgiven. And when we make mistakes... We recognize those mistakes, and we ask for God's forgiveness. And when we sin against each other, we ask for each other's forgiveness. That as long as we focus on being like Jesus Christ, studying and applying his word, we are on a good foundation. 
So this morning, I would invite you this morning, as the worship team is going to lead us in a final song this morning, I just encourage you. If you're here today and you're like, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm, I don't have the relationship with God's word that I need. Maybe uh, I don't have the relationship with God that I need. I know that I've got areas of my life that I'm struggling in, things that I've got to give over to the Lord, things I just want to get rid of. I just want to get them off my shoulders. It's this weight, and it's crushing me, and it is. It will crush you. But throw yourself against the rock of ages. Throw yourself against Christ. And allow him to give you this brokenness over your sin so that he can reveal to you what he desires for you so that he can begin to minister to you and help you so that you don't have to continue in that sin. I encourage you this morning. If you need prayer, I want to pray with you before you go. I don't want you to leave here the same way you came. If you've got areas in your life that you need to give over to the Lord or you've got a matter of prayer, I, I would love uh, for you to come forward. Worship team, lead us in this final song this morning.